0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Two weeks ago, as of today, I was gathering um, with 1,300 Anglicans from 53 countries in Rwanda for what's called the Global Anglican Future Conference. There's much to share, many stories to report on, um, but there's one in particular uh, that arose that I'd like to pull forward for you this morning. Every day we'd gather for teaching, we'd break into small groups with uh, laity and bishops and clergy in times together, and then in the afternoons there'd be all sorts of uh, instructions and teachings and panels and all this good stuff. Um, on Monday, uh, they randomly, uh, some cases two minutes before, grabbed the clergy and laity to be part of a panel discussion to share about the challenges to the gospel in their particular context. So each, from each part of the world, would share what they saw in their own particular context as were barriers to the gospel, more or less, where they lived about midway through, the microphone was passed to a Sudanese priest. Uh, we were asked, as the microphone was passed him, to not capture his name, nor record anything that he said, um, but we're at liberty to tell his story. And his story was this. He said, the most needful thing that we have in Sudan is what he called uma, or family. And he proceeded to tell why that was the case. He said, um, I grew up in a fanatic Muslim family. And he said, I was trained from an early age in all the teachings of Islam and all the instruction under the Quran. And even by the time I was in primary school, equivalent to our elementary school, I had a great hatred for Christians. And so he said when this uh, new family moved into town, Christian family, their son attended the same school he did, so he gathered his friends after school and said, let's kill him. His name was Zacharias. So they gave their best go of it and brutally beat him and left him for dead in the trees behind the school. They came the next morning and tried to find him, but they couldn't. And that was his first encounter with Christians. He fast-forwarded his story to a second encounter, uh, as a, really about a teenager, where he was going to visit the hospital to see a gravely ill family member. He said, as he walked in, um, he happened to pass by the room of some Coptic Christians or or Christians from Egypt who were praying for someone in a hospital bed whose eyes were closed, who was discernibly quite ill. I said, I paused long enough to hear them conclude the prayer in Jesus' name. And as soon as they did, their eyes were opened and they were miraculously healed. And he said, in that moment, my eyes were open and I turned to faith in Christ Jesus because of the power that I saw that he had. Now, in Muslim families, of course, if they do this, they're disowned. And we hear about that, but he explained what that looked like. I'd never heard it explained in such a way. He said, as soon as my family uh, learned that I had turned to faith in Jesus, they held a Muslim burial for me. They took a coffin, did the burial right, dug a hole in the ground in the grave in the city, and put a headstone with my name on it to show that I was dead to them from that point forward. And he said, That night I knew I had to leave, so I stood over this this grave in much pain, asking the Lord in prayer why, as I stood and looked at my name on a headstone, and he said, I audibly heard the voice of Jesus say, I too had a grave. My grave is likewise empty, and I too live. And so do you. And he said, a peace washed over him in that moment, and he departed never to return. Fast forward a little later in his life, and he felt the call of the Lord to ordain ministry, was catechized, trained, and ordained in our tradition, and began to minister to the refugees um, from Sudan that are usually on either side of the border there. And he said, a few years into ministry, he encountered another another priest who came with a smile and said, Do you remember me? And he said, "I, I had no recollection of who he was. And he said, My name is Zachariah. I was that boy in your village. And from that day, I've been praying for you every day because of the hate that I saw that you had, that you might come to find the love of Jesus. And it was, it was miraculous. I mean, we were fighting back tears, I even do now, thinking about his story, as they stood face to face, not only as brothers in Christ, but as fellow ministers in the gospel, as he saw that come full circle. Jesus calls us each by name, and we are never the same again. That is the message in John 10 that I'd like for us to reflect on. And while we may not all have such profound stories as this, they're equally as profound if we too continue to respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd. So I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible, if you have it, to John, chapter ten, beginning in verse one, um, and we'll look at it on the screens too, maybe, if it wants to play along um, here as well. There we go. Before we jump in, um, chapter ten is called the Good Shepherd chapter, and it really does stand alone as as a huge image of who Jesus is. But if we were to just jump in and pull this out by itself, we'd miss the broader context. Um, in which it's written. The sequence that follows um, is, is after chapter 9, which, which John wants us to see if we were to look back in the healing of the blind man. The large, looming question throughout chapter 9 is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he the Son of Man? Is he the Messiah? Who is Jesus? So in many ways, these first five verses, which contain the parable of the good shepherd, um, are intended to answer that question of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold but by, uh, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know His voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is very subtly putting this against the backdrop um, of many who hold authority in that day, many uh, warlords that had risen up in various regions and claimed for themselves authority over the people. Um, even Herod, who through all the, the, the slipperiness of politics had found his way at the top, still a Jewish man, but in cozy relationship with the empire itself. And then, of course, the emperor at that time of Rome, who claimed divine and right by his own hand. In that backdrop, Jesus says um, that these would-be shepherds um, have no authority over the people, um, they can't access the sheep through the means that they're supposed to, um, and they lord it over them in many ways. And in contrast to that stands Jesus, the good shepherd, who enters and who alone can enter and access the sheep um, as God has intended. And so really what Jesus is beginning to lay forth in this question of who is Jesus is something that harkens back um, even to Ezekiel. The Messiah that they look for would be not unlike a shepherd. And in our context, while that's a bit foreign, um, we at least grasp it in some way. A shepherd smells like his flock. A shepherd is around his flock, protects and provides for the flock. In a sense, Jesus saying, I call them by name and they follow me, is attesting to the very fact that he is the one, the Messiah, to whom they are looking. The, the sheep follow him out. The disciples have done so. He's called forth. the the brokenhearted. He's bound up those in need of healing. He's he's brought them forth, and they respond to his voice. So the question of who is Jesus is answered and attested to by the very things that Jesus is doing. And in that backdrop, there's this comparing and contrasting of that, as the Good Shepherd calls them each by name. So in this context, I think the, the first point for us maybe uh, to, to ponder is this about the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd alone holds authority. The Good Shepherd alone holds authority. And this makes sense. There's so much rich imagery, is there not? We know him by name. He knows us by name. We hear his voice because he's the voice that spoke all things into being from the very beginning. He's the one that knew our names before we knew them ourselves or our parents did. He's the one who formed and fashioned us in the womb. So when the author of all things calls our name, it meets us and hits us at a very different place, just as it did for that dear Sudanese brother, as he heard the name of Jesus and in that moment knew that was the one that had authority, not all of these other manners and ways of life that he had put himself under. And I think the question for us to ponder is this, we know that Jesus has authority, but do we place ourselves squarely under Jesus' authority day in and day out? There's so many places um, that we can put ourselves under different manners and forms of authority. Sometimes it's the age-old fallen nature of the old man or woman, um, which is to put ourselves in that position of authority, to be like unto God to uh, reign and rule in our own lives and dominion in that way. Sometimes we're under the subjection of authority of those around us. Sometimes it's not even a person, but we place ourselves under the authority of other things, the God of mammon, the gods of this age, the gods of materialism, the gods of politics, the gods of whatever it can be. We can place ourselves under the authority of something else. And so we have to recognize where is our heart, and as Psalm 139 reminds us, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts first and look and see, are we fully and squarely under the authority of Jesus? And if not, the first step is always repentance. One thing that was um, quite stark and refreshing over this conference, mind you, with, with leaders from all over the world, Every day after we would uh, have uh, some, some teaching and instruction, we'd break up into small groups, we'd gather corporately for corporate repentance. We recognized that we cannot begin to speak into the issues in any culture or context, let alone our communion, if our hearts are not right with God. And so every time we'd gather, we'd come back in corporate repentance before we ever put our hand or our minds to a single thing. It was a great reminder that we're in need of daily. It's not a one-time sort of thing. And with this backdrop, then we reach kind of the heart of the teaching. Jesus pointing to his authority. Then we see, as often is the case, in verse 6 and following, the response was that they didn't understand. It was not clear to them what Jesus was talking about. So in verse 6... As Jesus sees this, the rest of chapter 10 is Jesus unpacking these first five verses of this parable in a way and manner in which they can begin to ascertain and understand what Jesus meant. And as we move into this, it's, it's a great temptation, I think, in the Good Shepherd uh, chapter to jump straight to verse 11, where Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep but to leapfrog over this section misses an important image in an important lesson in verses seven to nine two times beginning in verse seven does jesus associate himself with another image jesus again said to them truly truly i say to you i am the door of the sheep Again, and he, he reiterates this time and time again all others who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them And again, a second time, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. St. John uh, Chrysostom said that when Jesus associates the image of the door there, he's always associating that with bringing us to Jesus. Um, I mean, bringing us to God the Father, excuse me. He's that access that we have to God. He's the only means by which we can access God. Theologically, we know that. Our minds run toward uh, John 14, 6, the I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All of the images that Jesus uses. But pastorally, um, if we were to go further into chapter 10, we'd see what that really means. This access um, that in their culture they would understand being a shepherding people, And being around that regularly, and we saw this in other parts of Africa as we were there in the past two weeks. It's a natural thing. But when the sheep gathered in a sheep pen, there'd be an opening not unlike uh, on our communion rail. And there the shepherd would literally lay down and be the doorway to the sheep. So the sheep could not go out into darkness, literally and figuratively, without crossing through the shepherd. And things from the outside could not come in, be they predatory animals uh, or thieves or anything else. And that's why Jesus draws a distinction between would-be shepherds, those in authority who claim authority, and he himself, hirelings, would not do that because to lay down one's life in the entryway for the sheep was a pretty bold thing to do. And so Jesus reminds us that it's not just access in a theological sense, while it includes that, but the access um, that comes solely from his authority is one that comes um, as he watches out over our going out and our coming in. Uh, It's really hearkening to that psalm um, that God watches out our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So he brings us out, as Psalm 23 reminds us, into uh, places where he protects and provides for us, calm waters and, and quiet pastures. Uh, he protects us when we are gathered, uh, and God uses that imagery all the time as a, as a, uh, a bird gathers uh, her, her young under her wings. There's a really profound and intimate image that's different than those in authority or would-be claims on authority uh, who might have in their own day and our own. And so um, we're called to reflect on where are the pathways to which we go to find the peace, to find the provision, to find the protection in life. And as we reflect on that, we, we have to recognize that we can't go anywhere other than the one who holds the words of life himself, Jesus. Jesus. One of our great uh, theologians was with us, perhaps one of the greatest of our age, uh, Ashley Knoll, and he had this really great line. He's a Kramnerian scholar from our tradition um, that was quite wonderful. Um, He basically said that of sin itself, that sin all has the same bait. We feel good uh, for a fleeting moment, no matter what it is. It's always trying to gather this fleeting moment of feeling good, and then we immediately feel shame and guilt, and then eventually we circle back around to some other form of sin to catch a fleeting moment. Jesus breaks that cycle through this loving care and protection he provides for us, and he provides us uh, the access that we have to God that we cannot have in ourselves or through any other form or fashion. And then finally, um, in verse 10, as this all ends up, authority and access are grounded in the kind of life that Jesus gives us in verse 10. Again, one more time, drawing a distinction between uh, the authorities of the age and Jesus' authority. He says the thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. Conversely, Jesus came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That Sudanese uh, priest attested to the fact that the places he put himself under authority in other teachings and other religions, the authority um, that he tried to exercise himself only at best left him void and robbed of all peace as hate only filled his heart. And the only place that he could turn and find the truth and the love of God was through Christ Jesus. And and I think that's profound because um, think about this, if you will, with me for a moment. What Jesus is offering us is the abundant kind of life that every philosophy, every religion, every construction of our age has tried to find through various pathways and manner of life. At best, they'll tell you, you know, at the end of this life, maybe you reach this or that state, Um, In fact, we we heard from some brothers and sisters uh, who are in a, a predominantly Buddhist context. And they said the joy that came and the weeping that came to an elderly man when he realized he didn't have to go through endless cycles of reincarnation, but rather could enter into the bliss and joy of God because of Christ Jesus transformed his life. But it's more than that. It's not just off someday. Jesus offers the abundant kind of life, the eternal kind of life, today. Think about that. There's no other structure under the face of the earth that says, I can offer you that now. Not just if you try hard enough and you, and you keep after it long enough, maybe you'll reach this, this state of bliss someday. But Jesus And only Jesus, because of the authority he has, can come crashing through all of the the things that we think of, swallowing up death itself and saying death itself is no longer the barrier to that abundant eternal kind of life, but I've overcome death itself, and therefore you can have that abundant kind of life here and now. And we access that through prayer. We access that through God's word. We have all that we need. The question is, if we don't lead and find that abundant kind of life, that's usually on our end and not his own. And so we have to look at the places that we turn for authority and access and realize that if we aren't discovering that abundant kind of life, that full and rich life that Jesus brings to us, what often looks first at our heart and then coming back more fully to him. And as we do so, again to clarify in this day and age that does not mean through material things or any of that nature in fact the joy that I saw on the faces of my brothers and sisters in Malawi who have so little and yet have more than I've seen in the faces of most people in western culture is because of the abundant life they have embraced in Jesus and with joy and felicity they greet one another and they greet us and they stop their day and they pivot and do all these sorts of things because they have found that abundant life in him that's what Eastertide is all about, my friends. And that's my prayer that you find that abundant kind of life in Jesus as well. And if you're not finding that, it begins first in repentance and return. And then secondly, it comes under the authority of Scripture and a daily return to Christ Jesus so that we might find that life as we forgive, as we love, and as we lead lives that Christ Jesus has given us so that we might live that abundant kind of life now and then embrace it for all eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.